Welcome to Pet Will Radio, a unique show about amazing animals and inspirational people. With your host, author, animal advocate, and attorney, Peggy Hoyt. Hello, pet lovers. Welcome to All My Children Wear Fur Coats on Pet Will Radio. Thank you for joining us. This show is brought to you by the law offices of Hoyt & Bryan and MyPetWill.com. I'm your host, Peggy Hoyt. It is my pleasure to be with you. Each show, we explore options and alternatives for creating a lasting legacy for your pet. If you have questions or comments during the show, you can chat with us live at MixLR.com forward slash PetWill. You can also find us on Facebook at All My Children Wear Fur Coats and Twitter at Kids in Fur Coats. Today, I'd like to welcome our special guest, Greg Morton. Greg is an animal law attorney, and he's the incoming chair of the Florida Bar Animal Law Section. Welcome, Greg. It's it's very exciting to have you on our show today. Oh, it's great to be here. I'm glad to, I'm glad to be here and talk to you. Thank you so much. Um, so one of the things that's really interesting about your background is you're actively involved with the animal law section of the Florida Bar. And part of what's exciting about that is that um, that section is a brand new section. So tell our listeners a little bit about um, that process and what that means for um, animal law to be a section of the Florida Bar. Sure. Uh, in 2004, I think that a, a bunch of attorneys around the state in Florida saw a need for uh, a group within the Florida bar itself that dealt with the topic of animal law. I mean, at the time it was a very fledgling sort of area of of practice and not many people knew much about it. So uh, they approached the Florida bar and the Florida bar approved them as an animal law committee, which is actually a group within the bar. And uh, we, we operated under that auspice for uh, 10 or so years at the at a point in time, we said, "Hey, what we'd like to do is become an actual section of the bar." And and the difference between a committee and section of the bar is, uh, you have a lot more resources, you have a lot more autonomy, uh, you're able to uh, have members join and pay dues, uh, you're allowed to have websites, and it just gave us a better chance to educate the public as about animal law. And during that whole time period. Of course, animal law itself has been exponentially growing. I mean, now you see law schools around the state teaching it now. You see um, a lot more people interested in that area of law. So. Well, and I know somebody might say that maybe um, isn't aware of how broad the topic of animal law is. They might say animal law. I mean, that seems like it would be a really narrow topic, but it's really just the opposite. Right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, really covers, uh, there's no good definition of it. What I try to tell people when they ask what is animal law, it's any time that the law touches on, uh, our, our use or of animals. So that could be anything from animals used in, uh, factory farming and in industry, uh, and entertainment, uh, pets, um, companion animals, uh, anything where, um, animals in the law intersect and it crosses uh, traditional areas of law, family law, criminal law, 
uh, international law. So it's it's really a very broad area uh, with lots of different areas of uh, expertise that folks have and special niches of animal law. So I get a lot of calls in my practice about um, uh, dogs that have gotten um, in trouble because they bit somebody or a veterinary malpractice case or um, some other aspect, ADA, um, Americans with Disabilities Act um, issues related to animals. I get a lot of those calls, and yet that's not my area of expertise for animal law. I'm, I'm more focused on the estate planning side and how it impacts animals and the facts that um, pets can be beneficiaries of trusts. Um, so I'm sure you see that a lot as well, that you may get asked questions about areas of animal law that are not necessarily your expertise. Right, and that's been one of the, I think, the most exciting things about the, the uh, animal law sections. We have, um, I think we're up to around 469 members, and of those members, a lot of them have a, uh, expertise in those individual areas. So now we, when we get questions like that, we can go to uh, someone like a, a Marcy Lahart or, or someone else that has that will take those kind of cases. Matt Deitch just did a... Uh, excellent presentation for the section about ADA and uh, therapy animals and housing. So as, as we've grown and, and our membership has grown, we've uh, roped in a lot of these folks that know a lot more about these uh, individual areas. So one of the areas that you are, um, is the issue and is the issue of animal hoarding. Talk about that a little bit, Greg. Right. It's a, uh, I'm a uh, animal lover, of course, and have, have a history of uh, being involved with animal law, but I, I tend to be a utilitarian too. So I mean, I'm a vegan vegetarian to, and uh, to reduce any impact on animals. And so when I was looking at, at animal cruelty cases, when I've, initially came out of law school and was practicing, one of the things that struck me about hoarding cases in particular is the number of animals and the amount of suffering that, that occurs in, in hoarding cases. Your, your, his, your typical animal cruelty cases wherein there's an act of violence and, and a single animal is killed uh, are, are certainly horrible, but with hoarding cases, I mean, you have large numbers of animals that are in a constant state of, of, of suffering. And so that was my initial interest in it. If there was a way to address that, that uh, it was something definitely worth pursuing because from a utilitarian perspective, you'd be helping a lot more animals if you could uh, address that. Of course, the difficulty in it, in it is that hoarding is, is not well understood and um, it's just only recently that, that mental health experts have started focusing on the area of hoarding. So I sometimes get teased by my friends that I'm an animal hoarder because I have three horses and seven dogs and three cats. But um, I remember you telling me once that it's not just the number of animals that's indicative of that hoarding behavior, but um, really the quality of care. Right, and, and that's a good point to make. I mean, you could have 
many, many animals, but if you're caring for them well, then you don't meet the definition of hoarder. Probably the most common definition that I've seen is one that uh, the American Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, ASPCA, is, has put out, and it was modeled after uh, a group at Tufts University called the Hoarding of Animals Research Consortium. And they look at three primary factors. It's uh, first, the individual possesses more than a typical number of companion animals. Two, the individual is unable to provide even a minimal standards of nutrition, sanitation, shelter, and veterinary care uh, with the neglect often resulting in starvation, illness, and death. And then third, the individual is in denial of the inability to provide this minimum care and the impact of that failure on animals, the household, and human occupants of the dwelling. So it is very complicated um, in terms of how it impacts the human as well as the animals. Um, and is it true, Greg, that occasionally um, really well-meaning people get caught up in this hoarding situation? Yeah, uh, yeah so there's definitely different categories of, of, of hoarder, and that's another thing that mental health, health experts have come to realize and one level of those is uh, uh, overwhelmed caregivers. Now that they still recognize that as, as being a problem, but it's typically someone who's suffered some sort of uh, trauma in their life. They've lost a spouse or they've lost a job or something. And so they had animals to begin with, but um, because of this, this trauma that's happened, they're no longer able to, to care for them. Those folks, um, stand the best chance with intervention of, of having their, the, the issue resolved uh, because while they are, all are in the denial still of, of how bad things are, they uh, do have some recognition that, that there's, a, there's a problem that needs to be addressed. Well, and I guess I never really understood until we started talking about this that um, the whole mental health aspect to hoarding and that it really is um, an offshoot to obsessive compulsive disorder. Right. I think it's only uh, within the past 10 years or so that it's made it into some of the diagnostic and statistic manuals for mental health, the hoarding phenomenon. So uh, as ec actual experts on mental health have started to look at this thing, they've, they've, said, hey, this is something that um, people can't necessarily control. And so part of the problem historically of with involved in hoarding has been people focus on the symptom, which is the animals, but don't address the underlying cause, which is the, the compulsion, like you said, with OCD, that they go out and get additional animals and really can't control it. One of the things that uh, all of them materials on hoarding we'll talk about is that it, unless there's an intervention or some sort of treatment, you'll have an almost 100% chance of the person uh, being a recidivist, which would mean that they would continue to hoard animals even if uh, you're able to resolve the, um, the symptom temporarily, like seizing the animals or something. The person will go out and accumulate more animals. So really, what, what are the options for treatment? Well, that's still something that's that's uh, certainly not within my expertise, but is uh, is not well understood either. Uh, 
mental health folks uh, getting involved with mental health departments and social services so that they can go and talk to the person about the problem and let them uh, give them options for the animals. A lot of times the people that are involved in hoarding are very fearful about what's going to happen to their animals. So if people can go out and, and acknowledge that, hey, your animals are going to be okay after this or we're going to take care of your animals, that goes a, a long way towards helping some of these folks out. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some cases where um, the courts have gotten involved and have basically said that this person can no longer own animals. So hoarding actually can um, give rise to charges for animal cruelty or animal neglect. Right. And that, I, there's a, uh, I've written an article for the Florida Bar Journal that's going to come out next month, and that's one of the points I tried to make in that in terms of often when the problem comes bad enough that the that judges or criminal law enforcement folks get involved, that's the best opportunity for there to be some sort of intervention. And if judges are aware of the problem and this, this mental health aspect of it, one of the things they can do in sentencing is uh, order that the person undergo some sort of mental health evaluation and get them the help they need or order them uh, include some sort of provision in their probation that they're not allowed to continue to collect animals and and own animals. Um, So along that line, I'm wondering then if um, since it's becoming um, increasingly more popular now to have counties or even states considering animal abuse registries, whether or not then a person um, that had some legal intervention from the courts on an animal hoarding situation might then end up in that type of registry. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, if if, uh, that was the type of conviction that someone had and you had one of those registries on the books, I think that someone, uh, that would be an appropriate place for that person to be listed. So that going forward, if they were attempting to uh, purchase new animals or get new animals, that there would be that that historical knowledge there in terms of the registry to let folks know that this is someone who's had this problem before. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a there's actually a bill up in front of the legislature right now that that uh, addresses hoarding. And uh, we're keeping one of the things the section is doing is keeping an eye on that and a number of other bills. But uh, that would go a long way towards uh, giving judges the power and authority to know that they need to go out there and do this sort of thing also. Okay, so that brings up a good point, and um, and I want to talk about that a little bit more. Um, I do want to remind our listeners that you're listening to All My Children Wear Fur Coats on Pet Will Radio, and if you have questions or comments, you can chat with us live at mixlr.com forward slash petwill. And um, today we're speaking with our special guest, Greg Morton. He's an animal law attorney and very active in the Florida Bar Animal Law section. He's also the incoming chair of the section. And um, so, Greg, you mentioned that um, the animal law section is monitoring some of the bills that are um, currently in the Florida legislature. Can you talk a little bit more about what some of those bills are? Sure. Uh, 
I mean, this is something to you that we were talking earlier about the exponential growth in animal law. I can remember when we were first started tracking some of these things in the committee, we'd see maybe one or two bills a year that dealt with animals or impacted animals. And it's grown exponentially year after year to the point now um, uh, we're doing weekly reports during session with uh, nine pages of bills all relating to animals in some form or fashion. I'd say some of the big ones that we're watching this year, of course, uh, every year decoupling and, and the greyhound racing industry comes up. That's something that we're following. Uh, there's uh, statutes or bills involving shark finning, the practice of shark finning and banning that that has come up. Uh, the hoarding bill that I mentioned that, that, that we're watching. And probably the one that uh, we've been watching the most is uh, the Justice Justice's Best Friend Act. It's uh, something that we've been working with the uh, guardian ad litem, Alan Abramowitz over there, their statewide program to uh, introduce more therapy animal programs in courts around the states. And that is becoming more and more accepted um, statewide, I've noticed. Right. I mean, the idea is that uh, in dependency hearings and in, in criminal cases where you have uh, juveniles testifying or uh, people with incapacities testifying, one of the things that they've discovered is that they do a better job and are able to, to testify if there's a therapy animal uh, available with them in court that helps them to testify. So a number of uh, circuits around the state have adopted that type of uh, program with uh, different models and that sort of thing. We have a very active one up here in the second circuit that uh, is doing very well, that is being used as a model around the state. But uh, we'd like to see as a section that sort of practice expanded statewide. Sure. Well, and I know the fact that I have a couple of dogs at my office every day, um, my clients often comment that, you know, it just gives the whole office environment, you know, a different kind of feel and um, having the dogs there to be able to pet while we're talking or just having them in the room is sometimes um, just helps relieve some of the stress that somebody might have in, in just the idea of visiting um, an attorney's office. Yeah, I mean, that's something that we're pursuing, too, as part of the section. We'd like to get someone to speak on a, some of the science behind that that they've done in terms of having pets and, and the effect they have on stress. Because, as you know, being an attorney is a high-stress job. I mean, you have high rates of uh, depression and alcoholism and that sort of thing. And uh, Therapy animals and pets can go a long way towards de-stressing de -stressing you. Yes, I definitely agree. And I, I personally notice a big difference in my day when the dogs are not here for some reason. It, it My office has a, a completely different feel to it. Um, and and it's, it's, it's nice to have them there. I mean, I have two dogs laying in my office right now while we're um, talking on the air. And... Um, you know, life just wouldn't be the same without them. 
So let's talk a second, Greg, about um, what's going on in the greyhound industry. I know that comes up from time to time. What's the issue um, before the legislature right now? Well, there's a couple of bills. There's there's one that would uh, that deals with um, uh, positive test results for anabolic steroids and making it a, a violation of law. Um, the big one that that comes up every year that's tied up with gambling, of course, is decoupling. The way that Greyhound racing works in the state right now is that uh, the Greyhound racetracks around the state are allowed to have uh, slot machines and other types of gambling as long as they run a certain number of Greyhound races. Well, when you look at the the statistics and the studies on these races, they've really fallen out of favor and they are not the popular thing that's drawing folks to these uh, tracks. It's, it's the other types of gambling. So what decoupling would do would be uh, removing that, that tie between the ability to have slot machines and other types of gambling from the number of races that you run. And I think that it's not, across the board, but certainly some of the folks that are, are still operating racetracks have said, Hey, if this was to pass, I wouldn't need to, to, uh, run Greyhounds anymore or have these races. If I could have this other type of gambling, because that's where the actual money is being made. They're actually losing money on the Greyhound races themselves. Okay. So what do you think the chances are of that passing this year? Or, or do you even want to venture a guess? I, I've given up pro, trying to be a prognosticator of what might happen in any sort of legislative session, but uh, I know that it's come up uh, in years past, and we thought that it was going to go well, and then been disappointed at the end. I, I just say, if it's something that you're that people are listening are interested in, the best way to follow what's going on and which committees it's going through is probably to go to the section's website. And uh, we've got a special tab that deals with legislative updates that we're trying to do weekly reports on. So that is good advice. So um, what's the website address again? Uh, www.flawbaranimals.org. That's F-L-A-B-A-R animals.org. And then uh, uh, on our news tab is where you actually see the legislative reports. And while you're there, you can check out all sorts of things about the section in terms of how to join our our different publications in terms of newsletters we've put out, uh, links to all our social media accounts. We're on Facebook, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and uh, gives you the opportunity to follow what we're, we're following and are interested in in terms of the section. Well, and people might not be aware that you do not have to be a lawyer to be a member of the Florida Bar Animal Law Section. Correct. That was one of the things that uh, when we became a section is different than a committee like we were talking about earlier. Uh, We're no longer limited to having just uh, attorney members. We can have what's called affiliate members, and that can be anyone that's interested in, in a animal law. You don't have to practice animal law or be involved in animal law, but you can join the section and and learn about animal law. And it's not expensive to join either, is it? No, as an affiliate member, you can join for $25. Uh, Attorney members, it's $35 a year. 
but uh, if you go to our website, there's and hit the join button. There's an application that you can fill out that uh, allows you to join, and we'd love to have you. One of the things that we're going for as a goal next year during the year that I'm chair is to grow to 750 members, and I think that we'll be able to do it uh, as long as uh, we spread the word and and let folks know that that, that opportunity is out there to join us. Yeah, so I, I would encourage anybody. I mean, I've been an active member of the committee and then the section and um, would certainly recommend it to lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Um, Greg, I don't know anything about shark finning. What does that mean? Shark finning is a uh, practice that um, involves uh, fishing and people getting uh, hauling up sharks, and what they'll do is just cut the fin off the shark and then throw it, throw it back because uh, in a lot of different cuisines, shark fin soup, shark fins are considered a delicacy. And so in the waters around Florida, one of the concerns is that there's this practice, sort of practice going on, and, uh, of course, sharks can't live without their fins, so you're essentially, when you... Uh, practice shark finning you're killing the shark and uh, it's been blamed for the a large downturn around the world of of shark populations and so this this particular bill would help address that situation so i i see that there's some information here that says it's estimated that 100 to 200 million sharks are killed annually for their fins alone that number seems incredible yeah, I think that it's probably correct, though, unfortunately. You know, the, you look around the world of what's going on in the oceans in terms of fishing, and that's that's uh, not surprising to me. It's unfortunate, but not surprising to me that you'd have a number that high. And so the other thing I see is that um, shark finning is banned in United States waters, except for the fact that there's no rules regarding the trade of shark fins. So importing them or exporting them within the country. Um, so I guess that's the issue. Is that right? Right. And they okay. would, uh, the, this bill would prohibit possession or landing of shark fins unless authorized by fish and wildlife rules and provides penalties. And that's one of the bills I think that's been moving at least through the house. Okay. Cause I think people are becoming maybe more sensitive to the idea of, um, killing for the sake of, you know, pieces, parts of an animal, as opposed to, um, a more utilitarian approach would be, which would be using the whole animal if you were going to take its life. Mm -hmm. Um, so it makes me think of um, what happens to rhinoceroses with the removal of their horn for, um, you know, medicinal or other purposes where it's just killing an animal for one small part. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a, a good analogy to use. Exactly that sort of thing. Obviously, there's rhinoceroses are especially endangered because of those sorts of poaching issues and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Elephants for their ivory. Um, I mean, these are issues though, that have been, gosh, uh, they've been issues for animal welfare organizations for decades. It seems like. 
Yeah, and in terms of uh, what the section is doing to kind of monitor those things, we work with uh, international law uh, people because that's one of the areas, obviously, where there's not a lot of good regulations and there's not a lot of overarching agreements. There's what's called the CITES Treaty, uh, and then there's some specific laws that deal with uh, trafficking and endangered uh, species parts. But once you cross jurisdictional lines and are uh, either in a different state or outside the country, those international law uh, uh, sorts of things start to kick in. Um, so organizations like uh, Humane Society International, for example, I, I would guess that those would be the types of issues that they would take up as well. Right. Right. So, um, Greg and I just want to encourage um, anybody who might be listening to um, not only check out the uh, Florida Bar Animal Law section, but also other international organizations that might have that broad um, approach on an international basis for animals. Um, are there any other bills, Greg, that are pending that um, we haven't touched on? What about um, domestic abuse um, that's been before the legis legislature in years past? Yeah, I think that we talked a, a little bit about it earlier, the uh, idea of a statewide registry that would uh, require clerks of course, court to file for notices of animal abuse uh, convictions to FDLE, and then that would post the, these convictions on a, a database where you could go and see how this person shouldn't be allowed to purchase an animal or shouldn't uh, this person has this history so that it allows uh, closer monitoring of people that have been convicted of these, those sorts of crimes. And one of the things that uh, if you spend any time looking at criminal law issues and animal laws, that the close um, relationship between violence against animals and, and violence against humans um, so I think that law enforcement and prosecutors and judges have definitely started to see that sort of connection and are taking it more seriously because they know that, hey, if this person's been abusive towards an animal, there's a higher likelihood that they're also going to be abusive towards a person. And that, going back to what we were talking about hoarding, a lot of times what you'll see in the hoarding cases is situations where not only animals are being treated, but uh, elderly parents or children that are that are involved with the hoarder are also being neglected. Oh, yeah. So that would make a lot of sense. Um, I was specifically thinking of, though, in the past, there's been some sort of pending legislation about um, domestic abuse and including animals where animals would be um, if an animal was abused as part of a domestic abuse situation um, and I and I can't remember exactly how that went do you remember uh, yeah that's a bill that came up uh, historically several times I'm not sure it's been introduced this session but the idea obviously is uh, if someone's been domestically abused there's a lot of statistics that show that the abuser will will use a pet as kind of leverage over that person and the legislation was to address things like uh, allowing women to take uh, 
pets to uh, domestic violence shelters and treating abuse of the pet as um, a domestic violence crime because uh, people will use that as a, a means of control. And it's something that I think that it's, it's time will come and that we'll see that, that bill coming again if it doesn't come in this session. Uh, but it's something that we'd like to see eventually that I would personally like to see pass the legislature. Um, I, I think I would be right there with you. Um, in um, looking at our site, uh, the animal law section site, it looks like there's also a bill regarding dogs in vehicles, transporting dogs in the open bed of a pickup truck or any open area of a vehicle that um, it looks like that may have passed and will be effective on July 1st of this year. That, that could very well be. I, I've, I've kept up with that uh, fairly closely, but I uh, have lost track of it within the last week or so. So if, it, if you're seeing on there our site that it's passed, then that would be a great law to see passed into a, uh, being, because I, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but I, I know on at least two occasions I've seen the outcomes personally of people that uh, had their dogs in the bed of chucks and the the dog were jumped out on the highway and, and ended up dying and it's just gut-wrenching to see that sort of thing and this would uh, not only educate folks that hey that's something you shouldn't do but it would actually criminalize it and make it so that you you couldn't do that anymore um that yeah i think that would be great because i ha i do see a lot of dogs riding in the beds of pickup trucks and it is uh pretty scary and fortunately i've never witnessed what you were talking about but um, um i'm glad i haven't so um as as our listeners can hear there are lots of things going on in the state of florida Lots of good information, um, lots of bills pending that um, could have positive outcomes for the animals um, of our state. And um, we invite you, as Greg mentioned, to visit our website at floridabarflabaranimals.org and um, to join the section if you're so inclined. And um, as most of our listeners are aware, um, Florida is um, one of the 50 states in the nation that allows uh, pets to be the beneficiary of a will or a trust as long as you create what's known as a pet trust. And um, one of the sponsors of our show is MyPetWill.com, which is an organization that has made the acquisition of a pet trust um, very simple. You can do it online. And it's linked to an ID tag as well as an online pet profile. And I'm proud to say that I am um, involved with that organization and would welcome any questions from anyone that might be listening. Um, any last words that you might have, Greg, um, regarding what's happening in Florida right now or on the animal hoarding issue? Um, nothing I can think of. Uh right off the top of my head well i want to thank you so much for joining us today and um again just want to encourage people to um, check out the florida bar um, animal law section and you're listening to all my children wear fur coats on pet will radio and um greg i hope to see you soon thank you so much for joining us
Yep, we'll be in touch. Okay, thank you. And uh, don't forget, you can find us on social media at All My Children Wear Fur Coats on Facebook and at Kids in Fur Coats on Twitter. We're here each Monday at 3 o'clock, and if you have questions, you can post them to my Facebook page. Um, You can reach out in a variety of ways, and until there are none, please adopt one. Happy tails. Thank you for joining us on Pet Will Radio. Visit PetWillRadio.com for updates on shows, links to previous shows, inspirational stories, videos, and more. Until next time. Take care.